new CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. I survive. You make quick, smart decisions. You never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. I am Kieran Mulvaney and I am joined by my co-host. Background in boxing, journalism, podcasting and everything that is outrageously watched. Eric Raskin. <laughs> Eric when I was attending a lot of fight weeks and a lot of weigh-ins, I would frequently joke about the fact that my daddy would be super proud of the fact that I was earning my money from watching young men with 0% body fat strip to their underwear and step on scales. And, well, dad's been gone for 13 years now. And honestly, I don't think I would even know how to begin telling him how I spent this Sunday night or why. I think as soon as I uttered the words, YouTuber, he'd be lost. Um, <laughs> yes, we are coming at you right after Sunday's pay-per-view event, uh, headlined by the eight-round exhibition between Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul. We're going to talk about that card. Uh, later on, we're also going to address some news inboxing, and I am going to run down my list of top five fights that make the case for Miguel Cotto Hall of Famer. But first, let's get right to it. Let's talk about this highly unconventional card on Showtime pay-per-view. Uh, let's begin with the main event. Uh, Eric, if you will, let me start by saying, if I may, honestly, I got to give some props to Logan Paul. Um, he got himself in incredible shape. He knew there was every chance that Floyd would whoop him if he wanted to. But he hung in there. He threw some punches. He took some punches. And yes, Floyd appeared to be half-assing it. And his timing seemed to be off. And he is 44 years old and 30 pounds lighter than Logan Paul. But still, I would have been out cold after six seconds. Um, <laughs> and I liked his attitude. I, Logan Paul's. I liked his whole you know what, this is ridiculous, life is crazy, what the hell am I doing here, kind of vibe. And I think his brother seems to be an obnoxious little shit, but I found myself quite warming to Logan Paul. <laughs> oh, no. A new, no, a new, a new Logan Paul fan has been born. I didn't say that. We, you just became officially the world's oldest Logan Paul fan, if you are a Logan Paul fan. I didn't say he's a Lo I was a Logan Paul fan. All right, so you're, I, accepting, I you're accepting of Logan Paul to some degree. Indeed, within the right context. <laughs> okay. I guess I, I would sum it up the, with, with what Floyd said uh, after the fight. He's better than I thought he was. I, I think that's fair to say. He was he was competent, Logan Paul. Um, we, we'll be talking in a few minutes, I'm sure, about uh, Chad Ochocinco or, or Chad Johnson, uh, whichever uh, name you choose to use for him. Relative to a boxer like that, yeah. you can see there's a huge difference in, in what Logan Paul brought to the table. This was basically kind of a real fight it was a weird fight it was a uh, physical mismatch and uh, an experience mismatch in the opposite direction uh, it was not a, a standard boxing match but it did resemble a boxing match and there were strategies being employed and there were some swings of momentum uh, you know it was like the first two rounds I gave them both to Logan Paul because okay. he was outworking Floyd who uh, was uh, you know as, as they say downloading gathering information deciding when Paul was tired enough for him to attack uh, and then around the third round Floyd started doing that and, and so I guess it was a tale of, of sort of three fights first two rounds Floyd not doing much 
Logan Paul, much like Conor McGregor in the early rounds, right. appearing to have success that wasn't really success. Um, then you had rounds three, four, five, kind of fun. I was surprised how entertained I was watching Mayweather start to do his thing offensively as Logan Paul got more and more tired. And then you had round six through eight when they just sort of settled into a rut of lots of holding and Floyd was no longer pushing so hard to do much damage. And you were just kind of rooting for it to be over. That was sort of the <laughs> the sequence of, of events for me. I went, uh, but, but those middle rounds, just as Floyd said of Logan Paul, he's better than I thought he was. Those middle rounds, the fight was more entertaining than I thought it would be. Yeah, and uh, following on from that comment, I'm going to leap straight to... Actually, we've got a few tweets of the week. They're all basically hmm. the same thing. Um, and there's a sequence from our good friend... Uh, he doesn't know that he's a, our good friend, but we like him. Brandon Lee, hmm, um, yes. uh, who started off by by tweeting, 0-1 versus 50-0, LOL. Um, <laughs> then he followed with like a couple of updates, like, oh, here we go, right, Mayweather's about to like throw some punches now. And then he finished with, all right, I'm over it. <laughs> With about two rounds still to go. And then there was another tweet from somebody I don't know, but was retweeted into my timeline um, from Grabaka underscore Hitman. If Floyd isn't going to brutally KO his hilariously overmatched opponents, I don't see the point in these things. And, you know, I was like, kind of part of me was a little pissed at Floyd for like letting him last the eight rounds, because I'm like, oh, this is just going to encourage all of them. Um, they're all going to come out of the woodwork now. Um, but I did also wonder, and I don't want us to like overanalyze this, but <laughs> I did also wonder, uh, at first I thought, oh, well, maybe this is just Floyd, he's doing it again, right? Like never, you can never overestimate the degree of cynicism about Floyd Mayweather. And I'm like, he's got his money. He's just in there to move around the ring. He's not going to try and do anything. And But then I also thought, and especially listening to him talk, I thought, even watching him, he was missing some punches. And I thought, hmm, maybe age is catching up to Floyd Mayweather a little bit. His timing looked a little bit off. And maybe he did actually want to slap him around a bit more and found that he couldn't. Um, again, don't want to overanalyze this. But these are the thoughts that went through my head. <laughs> we are we are podcasters. Overanalyzing is kind of part of the job <laughs> description, especially with a fight like this. You know, we're supposed to try to read something into it here and figure out something to talk about with, with this, which is certainly not the usual serious boxing match that we analyze an appropriate amount. We kind of have to overanalyze this to some extent. And I have <laughs> I have the same questions that you do about Floyd. Could he have done more? I'm not so sure he could have. Uh, I, I, You know, he is a remarkable athlete for a 44-year-old. Yes. Not that far removed from the last couple times that we saw him in an exhibition fight or a Conor McGregor fight, which is was sort of half an exhibition. He's not washed. Like, I wouldn't say that if you put him in with a good young fighter, he has no chance. Um, right. he, he, he's, he didn't look like that to me, but he's clearly not what he once was. And you're right. The right. timing wasn't quite there. But also, he's in with a guy 30-something pounds yeah. heavier than him. It might be that no matter how many times he hits him flush, as long as Logan Paul was in good enough shape to not get completely exhausted, which I guess turned out to be the case. It seemed he was getting on his way yeah. toward complete exhaustion, but it yeah. never quite got past that point of no return. And he hung in there and, and managed to go the eight rounds. I don't know if there's much that this version of Floyd could have done to stop a competent 190 something pound fighter uh, like 
like Logan Paul. So I, I don't really look at this as I'm disappointed in Floyd for not stepping on the gas. Paul was holding him a lot down the stretch, and I'm not sure there was much more Floyd could have done uh, to, to get him out of there. Um I, I, I was going to ask you how you thought Floyd looked compared to the last couple of times that, that we saw him. And, um, yeah, I mean, it seems like you're focusing on that the, the timing wasn't quite there. It's going to be diminishing returns the more he keeps – if he continues doing this, which uh, Brian Custer was asking him about afterwards and he didn't quite give a, a clear answer – at some point, I think this fight shows you that at some point – the right mediocre opponent might be too much for him. Uh, yeah. But it, but he's not there yet. He's, he's still got enough left to look in total control against a guy like this, I, I think was the key. Yeah. I, I never sensed that Floyd was worried in the least that he wasn't going to be able oh, to get no. through these eight rounds and, and pretty much do what he wanted to. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, no, he was obviously completely comfortable in there. I think it was just a question of whether he would have liked to have done more. And, and Floyd, among many other things, is smart. And... Mike, you know, you you talked about, you know, whether he would do this again and he didn't quite answer that. Um, He there there is there's certainly that cynicism in him that, my God, if somebody's going to throw money at him for to just walk around the ring and not get hit by a by a guy, he's, he's up for it. But at the same time, he's got that pride, I think. And I think that. If he feels, God damn, I didn't quite have it in there. Mm-hmm. I, I, he's probably not going to take the risk of embarrassing himself, uh, would be my guess. And if he's going to do an exhibition again, it might be a big show rematch or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems, especially if, if he is successfully holding on to his money, which by all accounts he is. I haven't heard anything about him uh, being mm-hmm. in, in any trouble in that regard. Uh, I sense that he's doing this more for a desire for the spotlight and even mm-hmm. even maybe a little bit of a desire to just get in the ring um, yep. oh, rather than, you know, the reported 50 million plus that he's making for this. I don't think he needs that. And I don't think that is what keeps him coming back. I think it's mm-hmm. sort of like the situation intrigues him. The attention intrigues yes. him. And so if another fight comes along where those things are in line, he might do it. But, yeah, I'd be curious if he'll like sort of watch this back and say, boy, I don't really like watching that guy in there who is mm-hmm. uh, a, a B-level version of, of the Floyd Mayweather that people remember. Uh, maybe I don't want to show them that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I don't know that it's uh, it's important to anyone what this does to his stock or anyone's image of him. I do want to ask you, though, the impact of this just on the sport of boxing, because it's something we've we've danced around and talked about a little bit leading up to this. Um, I saw some mention on Twitter of where it just felt like people who didn't enjoy this were holding it against boxing. And mm-hmm. um, to me, that's like saying that because the NBA All-Star game sucks every year because nobody yeah. plays any defense, that that yeah. means the NBA sucks. And and, and it, they yeah. obviously don't really view it that way. But it, it do you think that's just, just like in the moment, people are a little frustrated, they didn't see the knockout or they didn't see the Floyd they were looking for, and that that will go away, and by tomorrow nobody will be talking about that this fight proves boxing is dead or anything like that? I think that's exactly it. Okay. I think that everybody fully expected Floyd when he decided he wanted to to knock him out. I did. Um, right. <laughs> and, and that didn't happen, and I think there's that sense of, I think perhaps the people who are saying that were hoping, a little bit as I was, that Floyd would kind of smack him around, make him look really stupid, 
stupid and it would kind of put a little bit of a halt on this whole hey man i'm in good shape i can go and be a boxer kind of thing um and in fact i think probably the exact opposite has happened and now it's like oh my god logan paul went eight rounds with floyd mayweather just think what i could do with a bit of training and and i don't think we have seen i think i think it will encourage this kind of thing to keep going and whether you feel that's a black mark on boxing or just a natural extension of the carnival barker that has been boxing over the last hundred years or so right. isn't is is really you know up, up to you yeah they did a good job on the broadcast reminding viewers that the exhibition bout featuring the retired boxer uh is nothing new this has been going right. on for as long as boxing has existed indeed exactly um there were a couple of real fights on the card, uh, but before we get to them, there was one other exhibition as well. You've touched on it already. Uh, former NFL wide receiver Chad Ochocinco Johnson um, surviving a knockdown against Brian Maxwell to go for two-minute rounds. Uh, Maxwell uh, apparently is a professional fighter of sorts. Um, uh, apparently, he's 0-3 as a bare-knuckle fighter and 0-1 as a boxer. Um, and honestly that record probably flattered him a little bit from what I saw in there. But however, then when he scored that knockdown, he promptly touched gloves and made little to no effort to do anything else. At which point I was fully aware and perhaps should have been before the Maxwell's job in there was to just not embarrass Chad Ocho Cinco Johnson. Uh, is that the, the uh, feeling you came away with as well? Yeah, whether it was sort of his unspoken job in there or it was just the way that he felt personally that he didn't want to embarrass the guy and hurt the guy. I'm, I'm not sure which it was guiding him. But yes, when he scored that knockdown, which um, honestly the fight was not that I was scoring it carefully and they were two minute rounds and all that, but the, it was neither guy had clearly established superiority in the fight prior to that knockdown. I would say Um, that knockdown established that, okay, Maxwell is the guy here. Uh, And so then, yeah, when he went into touch gloves mode after a knockdown, I've never seen that before. (laughs) I know it's an exhibition, but I was not expecting that. And yeah, that's what it said to me that, he just does not want to knock Johnson out. He That knockdown gives him the bragging rights that he's looking for to claim yeah. that he, quote unquote, won the fight. And that's all that he needed uh, out of this. Um, but again, there, it, there there's a real gulf between a guy like Ocho Cinco Johnson trying boxing and what he looks like doing it, how uncomfortable he is in there, how yeah. bad his technique is. He was trying yeah. hard. Um, but you know, was tiring by the second round and these were two minute rounds, just the punching technique was terrible. The difference between him and a Logan Paul is really striking. And then of course there's still the difference from a Logan Paul to a a real cruiserweight fighter and what they look like. Um, so, you know, it was sort of interesting to just put it all on display for some casual fans and see these various levels of it here. I, if we're talking about overanalyzing, I feel like we may have already gone on too long for the Chad Ochocinco Brian Maxwell fight. But yeah, uh, and although we didn't mention the the great line from Chad Johnson that he lost his virginity tonight, uh, so there's a, and he thinks he's ready for Conor McGregor. Yeah, I'm you know, I'm not ready for that, but he might no, be. No. I uh, I really was starting to like like the fact that. He said in advance that he didn't want to be anything that he isn't, that this was basically a bucket list item, and that his main goal going in was to not embarrass the people who had worked with him and trained mm. him. And I thought, 
You know what? That's fantastic. Good for you. I'm I'm fully appreciative. And I thought, you know what? Okay, your technique's horrible, but you know what? For a 43-year-old complete novice, good on you. And then he went and said that, and uh, that was the end of my feels about that. So there you go. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, we had a couple of real fights. We did. Um, well. Although one of them, was it really a real fight? Um, Badu Jack was scheduled to face Jean Pascal for a light heavyweight belt um, in a rematch of a fight that Jack felt sure he'd won. But if Badu Jack didn't have bad luck, he wouldn't have any luck at all. <laughs> and and as we've discussed, and we'll talk a little bit about later, uh, that went out the window when Pascal tested positive for every PED known to humanity. Uh, Jack found himself in against unbeaten but untested and honestly unworthy Durbin Kalina. Uh, Kalina was deducted the point in round two and another in round three for his Henry Akin one day tribute act. Mm -hmm. And then Jack knocked him down. Uh, I think it was three times in the end. I kind it of was. sucked to do the count. Um, <laughs> Kalina, I thought that Kalina may have been trying to pull a wee bit of a Luis Santana at the end there. The way he rolled over theatrically and spat out his mouthpiece after Jack, Jack sunk a shot to his rib cage when he was already down. Right. But referee wasn't buying it um to be fair to kalina he took this at very late notice but did badu jack get anything out of this or will he just be grateful for the exposure and the payday and the win i think the latter i don't think he he got anything out of this other than exposure payday another win on on his record you know a little activity getting in the ring but kalina just wasn't on his level um Kalina, I, I'm not sure who the 15 guys Kalina beat <laughs> to, to to build up that record, uh, who they were, but Ryan Maxwell, um, Chad it <laughs> could be, could well be. Yeah, it, it's interesting about the way that it ended with that him sort of doing that act. I because there was apparently a three knockdown rule in effect. I guess you could say that the late punch. And it was it was a blatant it was a blatant punch when he was had a knee or both knees on the canvas. I guess that it didn't count because the fight was already over already once over. he touched ah, down a third time. Yeah, I'm not point. sure if that's how the referee was interpreting it or if he just decided I'm going to ignore this uh, yeah. this extra punch. Uh, I actually thought it was over after the the second knockdown. The way he went down uh, from a good body shot, it looked like he wasn't going to get up, but then he did. Um, I guess my main takeaway from this is that he was on his way to the Henry Akinwande disqualification yes. loss for holding. And that would have been even uglier. I'm glad that Badu Jack yeah. knocked him out before he could get disqualified. Yeah, I am too. I, I like Badu Jack. He's a good dude. And honestly, I'm happy for him to have an er easy and early evening for once in his life. Um, sure. He deserves it. We've talked about this before. His, his list of opponents over the last few years has been ridiculous. And he's gotten very draws or very close losses or very close wins against uh, against all of those guys. It's been uh, nothing has come easy for him. And so if he gets one early night, good for him at age 38. So there you Yeah, go. and and we needed one fight to end inside the distance so that we could begin podcasting before midnight. So thank you for that, Badu. <laughs> exactly. Checks in the mail. Um, <laughs> so because of that change uh, in opponents, uh, we and we didn't know... Uh, that Kalina was the guy that he would be facing. We were not able to do an official prediction uh, for that particular fight. There was one of the fights uh, on the card, however, for which we were able to make predictions, and that was the middleweight 10-round special attraction between Jarrett Hurd and Luis Arias. And we both scored not ocho points or cinco points, but zero points, <laughs> as we both picked Hurd to win a, a unanimous decision. But in the event, Arias out-hustled him over 10 rounds, overcoming a bogus knockdown decision, but also perhaps... 
uh, escaping what could have been a last-second knockdown to earn yeah. a split decision that really should have been a unanimous decision, I think. Um, I said on our preview podcast, I thought that Hurd would look uncomfortable early uh, with having been out of the ring for a while and having put on a lot of weight, but that he would steadily come on, as Jarrett Hurd does in fights. He did indeed look uncomfortable early, but he also looked uncomfortable in most of the middle of the fight and again at the end of the fight. And despite occasional flashes, he never did turn it around. He never did produce that that typical Jarrett Hurd kind of comeback. Um, was this a weight issue, an inactivity issue, or are Hurd's bad habits, his habit of taking punishment early and then just kind of walking down his opponent and beating him up late and not really having a defense, are those bad habits catching up to him? I don't think it's a weight issue. I, I I don't imagine that that's really the problem. I know he had to lose a lot of weight to to get ready for this fight, but it, I, I doubt that that is it. Um, inactivity, I could see maybe being a little bit more of a factor, but mostly I think it's the bad habits and the tough fights catching up yeah. to him. Every fight he's in, he yeah. takes punishment. And so at a certain point, that starts to catch up with you, and it's not so easy to just flip the switch, turn it on in, in the third yeah. round, fourth round, whenever you need to. And, and he had trouble doing that here. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, where he goes from here. Uh, and, and I don't want to take all the credit away from Luis Arias, who fought Indeed. probably the, the best fight of his career. I don't, I don't mean to make it all about Jared Hurd, yep. but that is kind of the, the instinct is to say, what the hell happened to Jared Hurd? This yeah. is not the guy that we saw a couple of years ago who can, you know, give away the first couple of rounds and then really dazzle you and and, and turn it on and uh, outslug these guys. Here, he seemed to be turning it around in, in the middle rounds and then starting to take control. And then uh, he, he just couldn't break through and, and finish it off and, and lost the last couple of rounds other than that bad knockdown call that just served to make this look yeah. sort of close on the cards when really it wasn't even that close. Um, your prediction on this, even though we both got zero points, your prediction was closer than mine. You you at least suggested it was going to be a, a sort of a narrow escape for Hurd after he does come out and, and lose the first few rounds as he tends to do. I thought he would, would win this one convincingly just because my perception of Arius was as a guy who just can't Absolutely. get it done at this level. Yeah, yeah. I know I was... Also, ultimately, far too dismissive of Luis Arias. And you're right, we actually need to give him credit for the fact that he came in here with a game plan, knowing exactly how Jarrett Hurd fights and turning that against him. Um, and he made that work for him. And dude, Luis Arias does deserve props for that. Uh, he absolutely came in with the right game plan. And and yes, as you said, probably fought the best fight that he's fought at this level. Yeah, and, and also let's give him some credit for overcoming just a weird fight with lots of starts and stops because, you know, there's yeah. rain blowing into the ring and he's slipping on the logos and they're calling timeouts. Uh, and certainly that that wet logo from the rain was the reason that he suffered that official knockdown. Um, come on, someone's got to jump in the ring and pour the soda on the ring. The Jay Rockin right. technique. Come on. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he was just dealing with all sorts of distractions and issues. And, and then you're coming to the end of the fight with that bad knockdown call swinging at least two points away from him if you if you scored it 10-9 for Hurd because you didn't totally buy the knockdown or you thought he lost the round otherwise. Possibly three a three-point swing if you made it a 10-8 round for Hurd. It was just really unfair, and I was 
quite concerned that they were going to give the decision yes. to the wrong guy. Let's tip our cap to the the judges uh, in Florida who actually got this one right and gave it to the underdog, the non-house fighter, etc. Ultimately, uh, uh, I, well, I should I guess tip my cap to two of the three judges since it Indeed. was a split decision, uh, but they got the right guy. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. You ready, Bob? Well, all right. Audiences are raving. Bob Marley is electrifying. It's the feel-good movie of the year. You dig? Bob Marley, One Love. Rated PG-13. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Indeed. All right. Uh, That will do it for that pay-per-view card. Uh, Let's move on. Not much else going on in the world of boxing either this weekend or next uh we have one other fight to review and one to preview uh in england this weekend daniel dubois bounced back from having his orbital bone broken during defeat by joe joyce to smash bogdan dinu inside two rounds and move to 16 and 1 with 15 ko's and next weekend super featherweight contender shakur stevenson returns with a bout against jeremiah nakatila from Virgin Hotels, Las Vegas. Uh, Eric, any thoughts on either of those? Yeah, I'll, I'll hit Dubois first, if I may quote myself from last week's podcast. Uh, I said, first fight back, I think he wants a KO1 or KO2 if he can get it, and probably he can. KO2 is my best guess here, end quote. Uh, so more important than a shout-out to Daniel Dubois, shout-out to me. Nailed the exact round. I know that feeling. I know it well. <laughs> it's a great feeling. Um, you know, it's great. It's good that you've got like that starter of getting getting the correct round. It's really great when it means something. <laughs> I was just going to say, wasted it on a fight that doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. You'll get there. Yeah, You'll get there. Yeah, I'll learn. <laughs> um, actually, I, I can't say it didn't count because I did bet this one uh, sort of. Ah, even better. Um, okay. Although I didn't do the KO2 exactly bet. I uh, wish I had, but I took a safer bet on the fight to go under three and a half rounds at even okay. money. That was kind of a bad line. Uh, I think the over-under wow, should have been more even, like two and a half, really? wow. right? Yeah. 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 Um, so anyway, uh, not a lot to say about Dubois, except he looked like himself. He wasn't gun-shy. But I wouldn't expect him to be against Dinu, who presented zero danger, as we discussed beforehand. Beautiful right hand to finish it. Uh, And with that, by beating Dinu, Dubois claims a vacant interim quote-unquote world title in his first fight back off a stoppage defeat. (laughs) The alphabet groups are a hoot, aren't they? Um, as for the Stevenson fight, uh, kind of the same old story with him. You know, one of the best young talents in the sport, still waiting to see him in with a serious contender, someone in the legit top 10, someone who can test him a little. And I don't believe that's Nakatila, who's 21 and one with 21 wins against not a single opponent you've heard of. You know, Stevenson's just 23, so there's no huge rush, but he's clearly ready for anyone. It would seem... You know, he, he wants the, the big opponents, but he's in these marking time fights. Uh, but at least he's been staying busy. And uh, hopefully an Oscar Valdez or a Jumel Herring, someone on that level is on the docket for him soon. Yeah, he feels like he has the talent to be more than ready. There's no reason at this point, I feel, in his career with what he's shown us, other than 
oh, these guys are busy and they've got to fight each other. And once the log jam's clear at the top, then he can get a shot. That's like the only reason for him not to be up there right now. I think he's he merits being up at that level, doesn't he? I think I don't think he needs to be protected very much anymore. No. And the question is whether he's got a little bit of that problem of he's not really worth a lot of money to these guys. Right. Yet, and he's obviously very talented. So maybe not that they're ducking him, but maybe they're not in a big rush to fight him either. Yeah. Yeah. All right, time for some outside-the-ring news, and while there aren't too many items this week, our main event combines two developments that are significant for the boxing-watching audience on both sides of the Atlantic. In the UK, Matchroom Boxing confirmed a story that had already been unofficially revealed a few weeks ago, that it has signed a five-year deal for its UK boxing events to be streamed exclusively on DAZN, a deal that replaces Matchroom's longstanding partnership with Sky Sports. Uh, One key detail... As previously reported, Anthony Joshua and Dillian White have separate deals that may see them remain on Sky. Uh, And here in the States, Hall of Fame blow-by-blow announcer Jim Lampley, uh, long affiliated with some minor cable network that isn't Showtime, uh, is returning to ringside. He has signed a deal to call events for the somewhat unconventional upstart network thriller, beginning with the June 19th pay-per-view event headlined by Teofimo Lopez versus George Cambosos. Uh, Kieran, thoughts on these developments on the broadcasting side of the sport? Yeah, look, as you mentioned, we touched on that Matchroom DAZN Sky News deal when it first came out a month or so ago. But yeah, look, this is this is huge, on, and, and not just in the UK, really. I mean, uh, over there, you know, Sky and Matchroom have been joined at the hip over the last several years. Uh, their partnership has really helped elevate boxing in the United Kingdom into the, once again, you know, mainstream kind of sport that, that it is over there. Um, Adam Smith, Sky Sports uh, boxing head and head commentator. He's been as much a part of the boxing uh, soundtrack and landscape as Eddie Hearn in recent years. You wonder if Sky will remain committed to boxing, you know, beyond carrying Box Nation as part of its like channel offerings or not. Um, I- I'm not sure if folks in the US truly get a sense of how massive Sky is in the UK and what a seismic event this is. But yeah, it could really shake things up. Um, not least because, you know, the way it has like broader ramifications is that, you know, potentially, OK, if folks want to keep their Sky Sports subscription, then DAZN is another expense. But, you know, to get a Sky Sports subscription, you've got to get the whole other Sky bundle package and you've got to get a Sky receiver and all of this. And if there are people who didn't actually want to go through all that expense, you know, maybe boxing is going to be yet more accessible over mm. there now as a result, which could be really interesting. And and that really and that's why it's a broader uh, significant issue because it's a probably the biggest shot fired I would say so far in the in the streaming versus linear or satellite broadcasting uh, a battle and we might just get more of a sense depending on how this works as to how that whole thing is going to shake up uh, uh, over the coming years and um, as for Lampley and Triller like another sign really that things are still sort of looking to shake themselves up and 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 how the whole broadcast network is, is going to work out landscape is going to work out for boxing look boxing needs jim back behind the microphone um he's a phenomenal blow-by-blow announcer we miss having him there it will be fantastic to hear him again and i certainly don't blame triller for throwing money at him uh, i don't blame jim either who's been biding his time teaching courses at his alma mater in north carolina for leaping at the opportunity i, I worry a little bit about the environment in which he's coming back. I mean, look, obviously Triller is trying to do something very different and that's fine. Um, but as you and I have talked about, I don't know that what they're doing necessarily works super well for say yours and my demographic. Yeah. And that may well hold even more for Jim's. Um, 
I felt a bit bad for our buddy Al Bernstein when he was doing color on, on their last broadcast and yeah. seemed incredibly out of place. Um, obviously, Jim's been brought on to be lead broadcaster, but I hope that this signifies that maybe they're thinking, okay, this time we've got a serious boxing event as our main event, so maybe we need to tweak it a little bit more so we do still appeal to the hardcore boxing fans and we're not just doing this thing because otherwise I think that's a waste of Jim. It might not be a very good fit for Jim. Um, I, I would hate to see him in that sort of awkward situation again where he thinks to himself, oh my God, what the hell am I doing? So I'm curious to see whether this is going to lead to a slightly tweaked direction for Triller, who, who are obviously still trying out and trying to see exactly what it is that they can do to be different and successful in this market. Yeah. And when you were just starting there, you said something to the effect of looking forward to seeing Jim back behind the microphone. And I swear in my he head for a second, I heard looking forward to seeing Jim bag behind the microphone. And I was like, <laughs> interesting, uh, interesting take, but sure. Why not? <laughs> no one has ever said that. <laughs> Except possibly Jim Bag. <laughs> right. Only fictional people speak of Jim Bag that way. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. All right. A few items on the news undercard. Uh, Showtime has signed a multi-fight deal with Jake Paul beginning in August with an event against former UFC champion Tyron Woodley, who is now 39 years old, has not won an MMA fight in three years, and has never boxed professionally. But clearly, Jake Paul and his people are, among other things, outstanding. Outstandingly good matchmakers early <laughs> yeah. in his career. Um, talks are underway, uh, Dan Raphael reporting, for a possible light heavyweight clash between Joe Smith Jr. and former middleweight titleist Daniel Jacobs. Um, as we're recording this, I don't think it's been confirmed, but there have been lots of reports that Machit Zuleski may have pulled out of his scheduled June 19th bout with Jaime Munguia. And Jean Pascal, who was scheduled to fight Badu Jack on Sunday night's Mayweather pull card, but was removed after testing positive for three PEDs, has tested positive for a fourth EPO, which is a lot harder to explain away and blame on your strength and conditioning coach. Uh, Eric, thoughts on any of, or all of the above there? Uh, yeah, I'll hit them all. I'll go in uh, reverse order of how you presented them. Uh, Pascal, my rule is three PEDs can be a coincidence. Four <laughs> is where I start to suspect something is fishy. Uh, but seriously, this doesn't really change the story at all. Uh, if we found out now that there was actually one more body in Jeffrey Dahmer's freezer, it doesn't really shake up the narrative. Um, Mungia Suletsky, man, Mungia just can't catch a break here. Uh, very mysterious the way Suletsky is reportedly pulling out, but giving no reason why. Um, we'll keep an eye on that. I assume they'll find somebody for Munguia to fight. Smith Jacobs, I like that. Uh, yeah. Even though he's given up some size, I think I would make Jacobs the favorite there, but it, it's a very competitive fight on paper. And Jake Paul versus the latest aging MMA fighter. Paul has found a lane that's working, so he's sticking yep. with it. And uh, it's showtime. Uh as we've discussed, it's for a different audience than this podcast is primarily for. So I'm not sure how much time in the week's ahead we're going to spend talking about this Jake Paul fight. Uh, but our friend Patrick Connor had a tweet about this that I thought pretty well hit the nail on the head. He wrote, not really my thing, though I'll probably watch. But in the context of larger boxing conversation, had it taken up a Showtime boxing slot, maybe there'd be more sense to the outrage as is. I guess, let its success or lack thereof speak for itself, buy or don't. Uh, well said there, Patrick. I have nothing to add, really. It's it's not taking up 
a Showtime date or Showtime yep. money that could have gone to other fighters. It's on pay-per-view. As Patrick said, buy or don't. Yes, I, I've never really quite grasped that line of argument, which is, God, this is a terrible fight. B, I can't believe it's on pay-per-view. Which you which which crops up every so often, right? And 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 that is the that is say what you want about pay per view, and there's lots to be said against it. You buy it or you don't, and that's that's the way it is. So yeah. there you go. There wouldn't be a pay per view event if uh, Jake Paul wasn't involved. So there you go. True. All righty. Top five list time. Yes. And it is my you're excited about this. Oh dear, don't get too excited. <laughs> it's my turn to answer the challenge set down for me last week by Eric. It is the ultimate dreamy challenge for someone like me or indeed specifically me as eric <laughs> noted miguel Cotto just missed out on being inducted into the international boxing hall of fame at the first time of asking so eric you asked me as the official life president of the highly unofficial miguel Cotto fan club uh, to provide the top five list of miguel Cotto fights that i would present to somebody who didn't know anything about him to make his hall of fame case uh, i joked that it might have to be a top 40 list but <laughs> You'll be I, th- I think you know. said top 47 or however uh, many fights, however many wins he has. Apparently, yeah, apparently including all his losses as well. But oh, okay. um, <laughs> you'll be pleased to know that that isn't what I've produced. Um, okay, good. I have, however, decided to cheat right out of the gate because I figure <laughs> if I can't cheat with this topic, when can I cheat? Okay. So the specific way in which I'm cheating, is that my number five is a three-way tie of bouts. Oh. So what have you... <laughs> I'm pleased to see that you've taken that in the spirit I was anticipating. <laughs> I guess I guess it could have been a 36-way tie or whatever. Uh, it could get have every been. fight in there, so I should, I should appreciate that you limited <laughs> yourself to only a three-way tie. That, that was plan B. Um, and it came during a period when Kodo was establishing himself as a bona fide uh, championship level fighter. Um, And these three, I put them together partly because they all have a strong personal element to them. I saw him face three undefeated opponents, uh, two of whom had gotten the better of him in the amateurs and and had them uh, pretty fierce beatings. The first, September 11th, 2004, saw him stop Kelson Pinto, who was 2-0 against him as an amateur in the sixth round after methodically breaking him down, knocking him down at the end of the fifth and then again at the beginning of the sixth. The second, on June 11th, 2005, was against the last man to defeat him as an amateur, Mohamed Abdullayev, who beat him in the Olympics and then went on to win the gold, but was no match for him as a professional, as Kodo hammered him, closing his eye and stopping him in the ninth. And the third, against fellow Puerto Rican Carlos Quintana on December 2nd, 2006, saw Quintana retire on his stool after a body shot. Um, no particular one of these three necessarily elevates itself against the others, but the reason I put them all together is that taken together, they show just what an impressive, while impassive fighting force he was during you know, what might be called his, his phase one as a championship-level boxer. This was classic Kodo, these three fights. Chin tucked, head forward, bouncing on his toes, working steadily behind a stiff left jab, and that crippling left hook to head and body. Like I said, classic Kodo, not speaking much English, rarely publicly smiling, steady and compact in his work, almost metronomic until suddenly seeing an opportunity and then exploding into into conclusive and concussive action. These were the fights that I would say, this is why, as he was coming up and establishing himself, a lot of people, including myself, fell in love with Miguel Kodo. You call it classic Kodo. I call it classic Mulvaney. I try to tee you up with the easiest possible top five list I can give you. And And you find a way to complain that it's not easy enough for you. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually, now that I see what the three are, I'm, uh, I'm I'm even a little more annoyed because to me, one of these <laughs> one one of these does clearly stand out from the others for me. Okay. Um, Pinto and Abdulayev were both among my list of also rans that, that mm-hmm. would have gone somewhere in the honorable mentions. Quintana is a top fiver for me. Maybe I'm a little biased because I was at that fight, and there are only a handful oh. of Miguel Cotto's big wins that, that I was at. Uh, that was one. I believe that was in Atlantic City, if I'm remembering right. And But I, to me, that was... Uh, not, Quintana was not the best opponent uh, on Cotto's record, uh, but he was a very good one who was well-regarded at the time, and it was one of Cotto's most complete and dominant performances yeah. against someone around that level. So uh, t- for me, that one was in the top five. The other two are not quite. Okay, fair enough. But it's my list. So there you go. Are there any more um, ties, or do we do we have fair to, just four fair remaining enough. fights? Okay, good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, number four. Uh, so in a amidst those three fights, he was scoring other victories against guys like Chop Chop Corley and Randall Bailey, uh, against then unbeaten Pauli Malamaji. But his September twenty fourth, two thousand five meeting with Ricardo Torres was the first time we saw him have to dig deep, find himself in real trouble, and have to fight his way back to victory. Uh, Torres was never one of the greatest fighters of his era, but he was always one of the hardest hitting. Um, and his fights were frequently all-out brawls. But um, in the first round, Cotto was Cotto, calm, impassive, dropping Torres with a really nice short left hook. But the first sign of danger came late in the first when a Torres uh, right hand splayed Cotto's legs a little bit. And then early in the second, Torres attacked and had Cotto in all kinds of problems for the first two minutes and change of that round until he finally put him down. Somehow, Cotto was the one who actually finished the round a little bit stronger, and he won the third. In the fourth, he put Torres down with a body shot. Then Torres came roaring back again in the fifth, and, it looked, and Cotto was needed to sort of find that reservoir again, which he did, dropping Torres in the sixth, and again, one last time in the seventh, Torres unable to beat that count. Uh, he pretty much had things his own way, Cotto, in his professional career up until this point. This showed us that he could be hurt, which was interesting, but also that he had the wherewithal to fight his way back to victory. And this was really the fight, I think, that marked Kodo down as an entertainer in the ring, mm. as well as a very good technician. Yeah, I th- there's sort of a glass half full, glass half empty, yep. different ways of looking at this fight that uh, maybe the most thrilling fight of his entire career, certainly the fight in which he showed Hall of Fame heart, you could look at it the other way, though, and say Ricardo Torres was a good fighter, a dangerous fighter, not a great fighter. And Cotto had to go to hell and back to beat him, that it's a bit of a mark against Cotto in terms of whether he was truly a Hall of Famer in terms of, of skill and ability. The fact that he struggled this much with Ricardo Torres, but also, you know, a big puncher catches you. It can happen yeah. to anyone. And he did gut it out and come back. This was also in my top five, despite sort of the mixed feelings about it. Uh, right. This this would have been my number five uh, with, with Quintana okay. just ahead of it at, at number four for me. But yeah, in terms of entertainment value, uh, this just might be number one for Cotto. Indeed. Um, my top three, spoiler alert, are all from one location um, because any accounting of Kodo's greatest hits has to include his residency at the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden. And coming in at number three, 
June 9th, 2007, TKO11 over Zab Judah. Um, it came just as he was really, I think, building to his peak. Kodo at this point was peak Kodo, I think. And he was beginning to establish a, a body of work and a way of working in the ring. It was beginning to make it feel as if this was a guy who could be on his way to the very top of the pound-for-pound pound rankings. Of course, within a year, he'd come up against Antonio Margarito and perhaps Margarito's tainted gloves, uh, and it got derailed for a while. But this win over Judah, I thought it was skillful. It was powerful. It was exciting. And it was in front of a packed and extremely loud Madison Square Garden crowd that would become uh, something of a trademark of much of Kodo's career uh, down the stretch. Uh, Judah started pretty well as Kodo adjusted to his hand speed and southpaw stance. But at this stage in his career, Judah tended to start pretty well and then not necessarily finish very well. Um, the Puerto Rican really began breaking him down around round four. Uh, round eight saw him seemingly on the verge of a stoppage. Round nine saw Judah take a knee in the corner. Round 11 saw the referee finally step in. This was exciting, but ultimately just a very impressive and dominating performance by Miguel Cotto, I thought. I thought this was the epitome of Cotto at his destructive peak, I think. So I was part of that uh, very loud crowd at the Garden that <laughs> night, although I, I was trying my best not to be too loud as I was sitting on uh, press row. But um, this, is a, this is an interesting one in terms of how to, how to regard it. Obviously, Judo was... Uh, another very good fighter, not quite great, certainly higher talent level than a, than a Torres type. Um, my recollection is that Cotto struggled m a little more in this fight than I expected him to, even though he did come through. And also that he got away with some low blows that helped him turn the fight around. Um, so, so while I won't object to this being in the top five, I see the case for it. It wasn't quite a top five for me. To, to me, this was one where... He was ready to grab the torch and become one of boxing's headline superstars and came up a little short of my expectations uh, that night. Uh, although, again, on the record, you look at KO11 Zab Judah. It is uh, certainly a strong win in terms of uh, just putting it on his resume. All right. Um, we return to the garden for number two. And... There are asterisks of sorts on both number two and number one, but still. Um, the date here, June 7th, 2014, is the last of his fights on the list. It is officially KO10 Sergio Martinez. And yes, there's obviously one very big caveat <laughs> here um, that Martinez was, to put it mildly, a wee bit gimpy at this point. He was 38 years old. He'd had some knee surgeries and he wore these very long trunks to try and hide the fact that he had strapping on both knees. But... All you can do is beat the guy in front of you. Martinez had been the lineal middleweight champ uh, when he faced Cotto, who, let us not forget, had begun his career at 140 pounds and was making his middleweight debut. Cotto and trainer Freddie Roach decided to test Martinez's mobility from the off and went at him in that classic Cotto style, never too wild, just stalking, coming forward, chin tucked, trying out that left hook that was really his singular punch of beauty. And of course, that left hook landing on Martinez's jaw early, wobbling him, Cotto then putting him down. Uh, another left hook set up a second knockdown. Uh, then he went down one more time before the end of the round, Martinez. He steadied himself a little bit thereafter. Cotto never panicked. He just kept at it, kept doing what he wanted to do, stalking him, moving around the ring, uh, uh, testing his mobility, looking to land that left hook, breaking through again in the ninth round. The referee incorrectly calling a knockdown, but clearly Martinez was pretty badly hurt and busted up at that point and his corner keeping him on his stall as the bell rang uh, to start round 10. Amazingly, Cotto's only lineal world title. Yes, there's a caveat. Yes, there's an asterisk. 
but it was still, given what he had to do and where he'd come from, I think an impressive performance by Miguel Cotto. Yeah, you know, mentioning that that asterisk, a big one on this fight, but one of the interesting things about Cotto's career, and, and we talked about this on the HBO podcast when he was still fighting, that he always lacked that totally defining, unimpeachable win over a Hall of Fame-level fighter in that fighter's prime. The guys you've listed already, he beat a lot of very good fighters, um, fought a few truly great ones, but lost to those ones, um, never had yeah. that absolute A-plus win, and that's why he's not a total slam-dunk Hall of Famer. Yep. He'll get in, uh, but the, you know there is a case for not voting for him, and, and this fight kind of encapsulates it, that you can put a big asterisk next to this, or you can look at it as he dominated the lineal middleweight champion, moving up in weight, technically came in as the underdog uh, and 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 stopped him and became the lineal middleweight champion. This is actually my number one, despite that giant okay. asterisk. Um, I, I think this is a great win, but yeah, it, even, even so, it does have that uh, asterisk attached to it. Yeah, he's one of those fighters where, you know, if you want to be an advocate, you can absolutely make that case, make the case, like you said, dominated and knocked out the lineal middleweight champ, for example. But if you don't want to be an advocate, if for whatever reason you're against him, there are plenty of asterisks to put up against his case. Like mm -hmm. you said, lost to the very best and so on. And even his best wins uh, tended to have a little bit of a caveat to him. Um, the number one entry on my list is, for me, the definitive win of Miguel Cotto's career for multiple reasons. It's his TKO9 revenge over Antonio Margarito on December mm -hmm. 3rd, 2011, again at Madison Square Garden. And lots of reasons for this. Not least, this was as fevered a crowd as I've ever experienced. Um, the more than 20,000 in the arena were overwhelmingly Puerto Rican, and they didn't just want a win. They wanted Margarito's head. Uh, after what had transpired between the two of them in the ring three years previously. Uh, I remember thinking as the main event began, I looked out at the crowd and I listened to the crowd. I thought, Kota doesn't win. I'm getting out of here. Um, <laughs> but it was never really in any doubt. This was the rarely cited spiteful Miguel Cotto, mm. um, ruthlessly and sadistically targeting Margarito's eye. And this is where the asterisk comes in for this fight. Probably Antonio Margarito shouldn't have been in the ring. Um, he had to go through all kinds of top rank influence medical clearances after having had his orbital bone broken by uh, Manny Pacquiao to even get in the ring. Cotto didn't care, especially after what may or may not have transpired in the ring between them beforehand. And he just absolutely targeted that eye ruthlessly, um, completely focused on it, had it closed by about round three or four. Margarita was mostly uh, reduced to mugging and making faces and beckoning Kodo on. He claimed he was coming on at the end, but I really don't think he was particularly. Um, you know, that first fight with Margarito had sent Cotto's career sideways for a little bit. This was the one that sort of enabled him to get back on his feet to slay his white whale, if you will. Um, and it was it was impressive. Cotto just settled into his comfort zone, had a target. That target was Margarito's eye. And he settled into a rhythm and he just stuck to it, pounding away, rarely dropping the mask until the very end when the fight was stopped. And he walked halfway across the ring just to stare Margarito down as he sat in the corner. Um, afterwards, fans were dancing in the street waving Puerto Rico flags uh, outside the fight hotel. It's another argument for his Hall of Fame case, just how immensely popular he was in Puerto Rico and what an immensely popular fighter he was in New York and at Madison Square Garden.
Yeah, if he has a defining fight, it's it's either this or Sergio Martinez. It's kind of like which asterisk bothers you more and which one do you think of as his greatest triumph? One, uh, the Martinez fight is more meaningful in the sense of claiming a lineal title. This one was more meaningful in every emotional sense imaginable and just what it meant to Miguel Cotto. Uh, again, you know, it's another one of those where it's kind of like, did he slightly underachieve what maybe the expectations for him were going mm-hmm. into this fight, given how compromised Margarito obviously was? It, it He just doesn't have that perfect, unimpeachable win on his record. Yeah. But as a look, I'm not the Miguel Cotto fan that you are, but I am a Miguel Cotto fan. And on this night, I feel like almost everyone had to be a Miguel Cotto fan. It was so <laughs> clearly babyface versus heel in this one, and the babyface prevailed, and so it was very satisfying. Yeah, and so a few in the honorable mentions category. One that I'm guessing you might have in your top five was this win over Shane Mosley. Yeah, um, that's the other which, one that's in my top five. Yep. Yeah, which you could certainly make the case was his best win, coming as it did against uh, an opponent who's beaten him to the Hall of Fame. Um, I have it slightly outside because I thought he was winning comfortably early and then allowed Mosley to come back into it before Kodo adjusted again. And I thought, you know, sealing it down the stretch. You could argue uh, his middleweight defense knockout of Daniel Giel, his stoppage of a younger and then undefeated Yuri Foreman um, to win a 154-pound belt. Uh, And then for me, a personal favorite, his... uh, early-ish career um, fourth-round knockout of Victoriano Sosa in 2004. Um, Sosa just gone uh, the distance, actually, with Floyd Mayweather. This was the reason I put this on here. Partly, it's the first time I sat ringside for one of his fights. Uh, for, for a previous one, I'd been up in the bleachers. This was the first time I was in the press section. And I that was the time that I thought, oh, my God, I just love this fight. And watching the way that he methodically and brutally just beat up and broke down Sosa. And Miguel actually told me... Um, many years later, that that was actually a pretty brutal fight, that Sosa was bleeding from his mouth really badly, and he kept spitting blood in Kodo's face during that fight. Um, As Ricky Hatton always said about boxing fights, they're not tickling contests. (laughs) They are not. Um, Yeah, so the the Mosley one, as I said, was was in my top five, because on paper, it's his best win, um, just in terms of, yeah, beating a Hall of Fame fighter close but i wouldn't quite call it controversial um it was a little underwhelming in the sense that i recall kodo basically did it with the jab and won a boxing Mm. match it never quite opened up and and showed all he could do in that fight but he did enough to narrowly beat shane mosley before shane mosley was totally washed so that to me is a top five win um i think you've mentioned pretty much everything else on my uh honorable mention list except um i would throw justin juco in there just because Mm. it was was only kodo's 10th fight and he was taking on uh, a guy at the world title challenger level in his 10th fight uh and really when you look at his whole resume it's impressive how much he got done before that first Margarito fight that yes. kind of derailed him. The first seven years of his career, from age 20 yep. to 27, it is just one quality name after another. Again, no A-plus name in there, but a lot of B-plus, A-minuses that he went through on his way to the top. Yeah, I remember the fight week in Las Vegas for that first Margarito fight. And I just sort of remember him doing a sit-down with some media, and I just remember thinking during that fight week, because I thoroughly expected him to beat Margarito. I thought he was just a different class of fighter. Mm-hmm. I really thought, based on what he'd done up to that point, I thought he was just going to go on and on and be one of the top pound-for-pound guys. And really, that first Margarito fight, he was never quite the same again. And it's certainly for those first couple of years afterwards, definitely 
at best sent him sideways i think that that kodo of 2005 six, seven, he was a very very impressive beast yeah, and uh, and we'll never know had he had what happened in that first fight against Margarito not happen. We'll never yep. know if Miguel Cotto would still have zero tattoos today. <laughs> that was what led him to start getting tattoos. And it was. Once, once it he was. started, he did not stop. Yep, when you watch those early fights and he has zero tattoos and, and head hair, it's, uh, it's very different looking <laughs> yeah. Miguel Cotto. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with two podcasts, a quickfire edition that will drop on Sunday night, in which the legendary Jackie Callan will join us to look back on episode two of the Showtime documentary series, The Kings. And then on Monday morning, we'll return with our regularly scheduled programming, featuring our preview of the June 19th Showtime Championship Boxing show headlined by Jamal Charlo against Juan Macias Montiel. Until then, thanks for listening, be safe, be kind, and be well. It's the most all-star studded challenge ever. And this time, it's every competitor for themselves. Best challenge ever! The Challenge All-Stars. New season now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply.